Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And I thank you that the Holy Spirit, your spirit, working through your word in the hearts of your people, affects dramatic change and impact in the world. We know that this is going out now by radio, by internet. People will be able to see it and hear it around the world, how thankful we are for the technology. But more than the technology, we need your Spirit working, applying these things. Otherwise, we'll never be able to understand them. They're just words on a page. So we depend upon your Spirit now working in a dynamic way. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week in Genesis 1, we saw God as the Creator Chapter 2, we see God as a gardener, a surgeon, and a matchmaker. He takes three different roles from that of being a creator. But we need to scoot back because chapter 2 is a focusing in on some of the same ground in chapter 1, and we ended last week at just the right place in chapter 1 We want to take you back to verse 24 of chapter 1, the sixth day of creation, where God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind. Cattle, or those that are the domestic beasts that can be tamed by man, and creeping thing and beast, the wild animal that typically isn't tamed, each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now, it would seem that according to what we just read, that all of this biological life, these creatures, including man, as we'll see in the following verses, were created on the sixth day of creation. But... With this in view, we have a problem. If we were to venture on a weekend to a typical natural history museum, we might see a sign. I've noticed these signs in a lot of places where they have determined the age of the world as being so old using their dating methods, and it changes from place to place and year to year and scientific community to scientific community. But I've seen the sign that would say, Dinosaurs ruled the earth, reigned over the earth 140 million, for 140 million years. But they suddenly became extinct 60 million years before man was on the earth. Well, we have a problem because Genesis would indicate that man and beast were created the same day. And I would categorize dinosaur as being part of the beasts that were made. We know there were dinosaurs. There's ample evidence everywhere. The problem is that we find some of the fossils in the horizontal strata um, placed vertically that cover several strata as if they were there for several different years. 
Now, we'll get to that when we get to chapter 6 through chapter 11, the flood. But the problem is, if God created dinosaurs and man the same day, is the Bible wrong or are the signs wrong? Well, if you were to take a little trip about an hour south of Fort Worth, Texas, a little town called Glen Rose, Texas. They made some interesting discoveries. They made it there first. They've even made some in New Mexico. But the one in Glen Rose, Texas, is a little river called the Paluxy River, and they have hardened limestone layering on a portion of the river where they have found dinosaur footprints embedded in the limestone and well-preserved. They've measured them. They've categorized them. They've taken pictures of them, placed them in scientific journals. Well, after they did that, they then discovered a little further down the same river footprints of man in the same area with footprints of dinosaurs. Uh, It was an interesting find, to say the least. It caused a real ruckus in the scientific community. In fact, some tried to cover it up and dismiss it instantly. But many pointed out the fact that you have evidence of man and dinosaur living together, so it would seem, according to such finds, that the signs are wrong. So on this day, the sixth day, God created beast, and then, verse 26, then God said... Now watch this. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice the word God. Same word that we find in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the Hebrew word Elohim. Now, just a note about that word. It's a common word in the Old Testament for God. It's a plural noun. A plural noun, but singular in meaning. Im, I am, is the, in Hebrew, the male plural form. Ot, O-T, would be a female plural. Like if you want to say banana in Hebrew, you say Banana. If you want to say bananas in Hebrew, you say bananot. That's the feminine plural. Um, I am, im, is the masculine plural. So it's a plural noun, as if to read God's. However, it is singular in usage. Now, did you notice the construction? God said, let us make man in our image. And then it doesn't say, so they created man in their image, but it says, so God created man, verse 27, in his own image. We have a hint, even in Genesis 1, of the Trinity. Because who else is God speaking to when he said, let us make man in our image? He's not speaking to angels. Angels didn't create anything. They were created by God. They were part of the creation. God is speaking to Himself. This is inter-Trinitarian communication. This is the Father and the Son and the Spirit having a little convening together. Let us make man in our image. 
and Elohim did. But notice the he, singular pronoun, made man in his image. So we have a hint of the Trinity. Now the Bible states clearly, and it's very clear in the Old Testament, the unique one nature or the oneness of God. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So many people get confused when they find other verses that seem to speak of the Trinity or the triune nature of God. How can that be? It sounds impossible. If the Bible is so avid with the oneness of God, and then yet Christians teach the triune nature of God. It's simply because the Bible teaches the triune nature of God. Now, you're never going to get your mind fully around that. It's one of the imponderables of Scripture. Just when you think you've got it by some clever analogy, like an apple or an egg or water, you realize the more you study it, it, it vanishes from the ability to comprehend. Now, it is not impossible, and some of these illustrations can be helpful, but they are limited. For example, time can exist in three different dimensions. It can be um, yesterday, it can be today, and it can be tomorrow. It just depends on what reference you're speaking from. All at the same time. Water can exist in uh, ice and in vapor and in fluid. If you've ever been at a cold lake like in Alaska and the sun shines on it and you see that vapor hovering above the lake and yet there's ice at the, at the surface on the edge of the lake but there's liquid in the middle... It's water, all of it, but existing in three states. The Bible teaches that there is one God existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's sort of inexplicable, but here it just appears. God, Elohim, said, let us make man in our image. So God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. Now, what does it mean to be in the image of God? Well, here's a couple of hints. We're different from animals. You're different from your dog or your cat. Very different. I hope you realize that. I know you might love your your puppy. I just got a new puppy. I love that little puppy. But I realize it's not a human. It is a dog. And it might... It might do little things that responds to my voice and I'm thinking, Oh, look what it's doing. It's thinking this. It's probably not. It doesn't have the ability to share the communicable attributes with God like you and I. We can reason. We can ration. We're rational creatures most of the time. We have the ability to apply intellect and reason and research and come to conclusion. Uh, logical thought attached to other thoughts. Animals can't do that. Also, we are tripartite in our being. We're composed of three, body, soul, and spirit, the Bible tells us. First Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul prays that God would sanctify us completely, body, soul, and spirit, until the coming of Jesus Christ. Not just body and soul, not just flesh and conscious life, but body, soul, and spirit. So, also having three natures similar to that of God. We are in the image of God. We are a reflection of God. But, here's something else you should know. That elevates us, certainly, when you think of that. 
We are a reflection of God, but the reflection has gotten dimmer. We are a faint reflection of our Creator. This is not what God originally intended. These wrinkles, that's not what God originally had in mind. Now, if you don't have any, just wait, you'll get some. This whole degenerative process, we reflect God, certainly. We're in His image, but the image is faint. If you want to see what, if you want to see what God fully intended, look at Jesus Christ. Perfect. Flawless. Sinless. Now one day we will be restored and we will definitely fully reflect the idea that God had from the beginning. Then God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. I think we've done a pretty good job of that. And subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the earth. Now we see man has a unique relationship to the universe that God made. To subdue it. To have dominion over it. Now this verse is sort of like the Magna Carta for scientific research and development. God is giving us the permission to find out and harness the potential. And get a handle on it and use it for your benefit. Subdue it. Harness it. Find out what I have put in it. There's a great proverb. It says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter and yet the glory of kings to find it out. God has put so much in His creation, but as we apply our minds to finding out how we can harness energy and how we can build uh, comfortable dwelling places and transport ourselves, all of that is part of the image of God and subduing the creation that God has given to us. And God said, see, I have given you, verse 29, every herb, that's not herb, but herb, that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. In the beginning, it would seem that you and I were created, or mankind was created, to eat only vegetables. The beasts of the field and man that was created were herbivores. Now, however, before you get carried away on that, in Genesis chapter 9, God says to man to eat of the flesh of the beasts of the field. But here he says, I made everything around you. He wanted there to be a population of these animals to grow And then later on, we'll be able to subdue even them after the flood. But this brings up something my mom used to tell me all the time. Son, make sure you eat your vegetables. And oh, how I hated it until I discovered the Bible says it's a good thing to eat your vegetables. And and one of the reasons, perhaps, we're less and less in the image of God is some of the stuff we put in our bodies. I'm not going to get on a tangent about it. But just by the stuff we process and eat, it's so crazy and filled with such weird chemicals and we can contract now so many 
different kinds of diseases and strains of them, um, the more we live, the, the less we are in that image. So uh, if you are what you eat, my goodness, you know, what are we, a, a greasy French fry perhaps? <laughs> then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. Now, seven times in this chapter, God says, after he makes something, it's good, it's good, it's good. Now to sum it up, it's very good. That's important you remember that because soon this will be in contrast to the very first time God says something isn't good. He says things are good. This is what I want. This is what I intended. And then in chapter 2, we'll discover something isn't good. Indeed, it was very good. So evening and morning were the sixth day. Now we come to chapter 2. And some people think that chapter 2 is actually a conflicting story with chapter 1. Do you know there are some that believe that chapter 1 was written by one author and chapter 2 was written by a different author and uh, both are the creation story. Both of these characters didn't know each other and um, uh, they're in conflict with each other. Not so. They're in harmony with each other. This is what it is. Chapter 1 is the wide-angle lens view. Chapter 2 is the zoom lens view. Chapter 1 shows you the scope of all of the days of creation, all of the things God made from the the, uh, luminaries in the sky, the heavens and the earth, and now it zooms in on God's crowning creation, His most important creation, mankind. In chapter 2, human history begins. The genesis of humanity is talked about, focused on, in chapter 2 of Genesis. And because of that, you're going to view in just a minute a different title for God. It's going to be very important to you. As chapter 1 discusses Elohim, chapter 2 will give God a different title because of this. Thus, chapter 2, verse 1, the heavens and the earth... And all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it because he rested from all of his work which God had created and made. Now don't get the idea that six days of work made God really tired And he needed a rest. He's just fatigued and God comes home and he goes, Wow, that was hard. I need a break. It simply means God rested because there was no more things to do, nothing else to make. Everything was completed. In fact, the word seventh, and it appears three times in these verses for emphasis. The word seventh comes from the Hebrew root that means to be full or to be completed. On the seventh day, everything was done. God's purposes in creation were fulfilled. He had nothing left to do as far as creation was concerned. So it was the seventh day. It was full. It was completed. So God rested. Now, I I mentioned the word seventh is mentioned three times in these verses. I don't know if I mentioned last week, I think I did it in passing, but some people have read Genesis, the creation story, in the first few chapters. And 
mistakenly confused it with some of the Babylonian narratives of creation called the Babylonian cosmogony. And they've said, well, there's a lot of difference or there's a lot of similarities between Genesis and the Babylonian uh, record of creation. Uh, Therefore, um, you know, uh, these things all must be myth or perhaps Genesis borrowed it from the Babylonians. I couldn't disagree more. The fact of the matter is the imprint of God's creation was so fresh upon all of the cultures at that time, it would naturally show up in a number of sources, and it does. And so there would be similarities. You would anticipate that. But the further that these cultures got from the original, from the truth, from the moment of creation especially, and things were added and made up, they weren't preserved like the truth of Scripture, you would also expect to see some differences. And though there are similarities between Babylonian as well as other narratives and the Genesis account, there's a lot of differences as well. Huge differences. The sun and the stars were worshipped by the Babylonians and the Egyptians. They thought that the stars and the moon, the planets, ruled the life and, and determined life upon the earth. Hence the zodiac and astrology was developed. But Genesis says that the universe was created around man, by God, around God's crowning creation, man. Something else. In the Babylonian account, the seventh day of the week is considered unlucky. Uh, Day seven of the month, day 14, day 19, day 21, and day 28 are all considered unlucky days according to the Babylonians, but the seventh day especially. But according to Genesis... That superstition is absent. God blessed it. God made it holy. It's a day of refreshment. Not this superstitious fear like, "Uh uh-oh, it's the seventh day. Sort of like Friday the 13th. It's the seventh day set apart and blessed by God. And he sanctified it, verse 3, because in it he rested from all his work which God created and made. Now, I want you to notice something. It, it, will, it will be important later on when we go through the Jewish Sabbath. God gives Adam no command to keep the seventh day here. He will give it later on to the children of Israel. It will be part of the law of Moses as part of the covenant, the external sign of the covenant God has with the Jewish people. But he gives Adam no command to keep the seventh day. Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. However, God did create a day, and it seems to be, in fact, not seems, it is a biblical pattern to enjoy a full day of rest. Now, the pattern in Judaism, and I actually love it, is you work six days and you're off one day. Now, in America, um, it's a five-day work week, and then you're off, supposedly, two days, Saturday and Sunday. In Europe, it's you work four days, you're off three days. And, but I think six and one is a, is a better pattern because I rarely have met people who legitimately take two full days off. You know, I know what it's like. It's hard for me to slow down. Sundays when I come home after three messages, I start working in the yard. It's how I'm built. I can't just lay down and take a nap. But if you could just spend one day 
in cruise mode, doing nothing, no responsibilities, you'd be happier, I believe. I think you'd live longer. You'd be healthier. And so, since we're in the image of God, it makes sense that part of the likeness bearing the image of God is that when we finish our work week, we rest for one day. Now, I'm preaching to myself even as I say this. But this would be good, and this is a biblical pattern. Verse 4, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth, before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Now, I promised you that in chapter 2 there would be a new name for God that would appear, and it does. Notice in verse 4, it says, In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The term Lord is the Hebrew tetragrammaton. How many have heard of the tetragrammaton? Okay, I'm going to explain it because most haven't. The tetragrammaton, typically pronounced Yahweh or Jehovah in some older Bibles, comes from four Hebrew letters, hence tetragrammaton, four letters. We would say they're Y-H-V-H or W-H, and we typically pronounce it Yahweh. We don't know how it was pronounced because we only have those consonants, and we've lost the pronunciation. I'll explain why. But the Hebrew tetragrammaton is in Hebrew yod he vav he And it would be pronounced Yahweh or Yahweh or Yahoveh. We don't exactly know. We've lost the pronunciation. But that is the Hebrew word here for the word Lord. Anytime you see in your Bible, in your Old Testament, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, like you see in that verse, it is that tetragrammaton, the word, and let's just call it Yahweh. Okay. Now here's why it's used here. Elohim is God's name for His transcendence and power over creation. In relationship to being the Creator, He is Elohim. The mighty God. In his relationship to history, especially history of his people, the covenant people, he uses the covenant name, Yahweh. It's very important. When Moses was commissioned by God to go to the children of Israel, you remember the story? And Moses said, well, who am I going to say sent me? They're going to ask, what's God's name? If God told you to be here, what's his name? Exodus chapter 3, God says, I am that I am. Tell them that I am has sent you to them. For this is my name forever and a memorial to all generations. Now, the little tetragrammaton or Yahweh is the first person form of the Hebrew word Hayah, which means to be. And I am that I am, or I am, simply means God is the self-existent one. He doesn't depend on anybody else for life. He's the self-existent one. He is the only 
non-contingent being in the universe. Every, everything else is dependent, contingent upon God. But God is non-contingent, non-dependent. He's the self-existent one. He's the uncaused cause. Also, the term Yahweh speaks of God's eternal nature. Not I was that I was, but I am. He's always faithful. He's always available. All of the characteristics that embody Him are part of His eternal nature. So, you have Elohim, God's relationship to His creation. You have Yahweh, God's relationship in history, especially His covenant name to His people. Now, remember how I said we don't know how it's pronounced? It's unusual because even though Hebrew is made up of consonants and vowels are simply put there by little marks uh, above and below it so we know how to pronounce the vowels, we've lost the pronunciation of the name of God because, according to Jewish tradition, God's name is so holy it should never be uttered by human lips. So they have substituted the tetragrammaton and the pronunciation Yahweh for a different term. They put in a different term that's not even there in the Hebrew text, the term Adonai. And so the Jewish people, when they come to this, will either say Adonai or they will say um, um, Hashem, which means the name. And if they write God, they won't write God. They'll put G-D if they're writing it in English. Because they feel God's name is holy, it's ineffable, it's uh, unpronounceable, we shouldn't tarnish it. But we do have the tetragrammaton and we'll refer to it as Yahweh as we go through. Make sense? Okay. So, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, before any plant of the field in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the ground... There was no man to till the ground, get this, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. God had his own automated watering system, his own sprinkler system over the earth to keep it lush. It's hard to know exactly what this means. I can only take a stab at it. There are some creationists, uh, evangelical Christians who come from the scientific community, who believed that this was a canopy, as I mentioned last week, that covered the whole earth. Uh, Molecules of water vapor suspended in the edge of the atmosphere that produced a greenhouse effect, a hothouse effect, uh, keeping uh, uh, everything around the world uh, an even temperature, restricting mass air movements, creating a lush environment worldwide. There were no barren deserts. There were no polar ice caps. And that was the environment. No rain at all. Just this this mist that went up and this uh, very wet environment. And so some believe that the rain didn't come till the judgment of God upon the earth and God used the waters in that canopy above the earth as well as um, uh, the uh, waters in the earth uh, to caused the water on the earth to accumulate rapidly. So God broke up the canopy, uh, brought it down in the form of rain. The canopy has now since vanished. But what some of these scientists will tell you is that this was one of the contributing factors for people living so long on the earth, is that canopy. Because what the canopy did is restrict ultraviolet radiation, which causes sunburn. 
Remember I told you a little bit last week about the electromagnetic spectrum, visible and invisible photon radiation? And in, in the visible light spectrum, you've got some of the shorter high-energy wavelength that are violet, some of the uh, lower-energy wavelength, that's the red hues. But then there's invisible energy, invisible radiation. And part of that in the electromagnetic spectrum, the UV, the ultraviolet, you can't see it. But it's high energy, it's very short wavelength, it penetrates unless it's attenuated or stopped by something. And so it is thought by these scientists that the canopy attenuated that intense ultraviolet radiation that causes skin damage and, and promotes aging. And that is one of the factors that... Uh, contributed to man living 700, 800, 900 years. People say, you got to be kidding. But you do notice that as soon as the flood happens on the earth, that man's age drops dramatically from that point on. You read about it even in the scripture. Now, not everybody agrees with that. Some believe the canopy theory is fraught with difficulties. There's more problems posed by it than, than uh, problems it's solved. And this is just a vapor of uh, moisture in the air. It's still present today. And uh, God used it for a special purpose at that time, and etc., etc. I can't debate either way. Uh, both are plausible. I'm not a scientist. As you know, I'm just a pastor. So... Uh, a mist went up from the earth. God had a cool watering system on the whole face of the ground. And the Lord, verse 7, how are we doing for time? Good. We'll at least make two. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. What a scene. God created mankind. Now the author is focusing in on this special crowning creation of God, humanity. This inanimate corpse and then God breathing breath into the nostrils. Now, I do want you to notice the word formed. Yasar is the Hebrew word. It means to mold or to shape. But it means to mold or to shape Carefully, It's a word often used in ancient times in this language to speak of an artist making something beautiful, an expression. Here's what you need to know. The earth is not only a designer planet, it's a disposable planet. I know I'm preaching uh, in an era when that is not popular. It is a disposable planet. God created it and God will uncreate it. God will destroy it. The Bible says that. It was created by God to fulfill His purposes in redemption. In the history of man, the genealogies of man, the plan of man announced through the Scriptures, the coming of Christ, and then eventually He'll rule and reign over those who are devoted to Christ. He'll destroy this earth and the heavens and create a new heavens and a new earth. It's a disposable planet. Um, I can prove that. Uh, before you go to bed tonight, read the book of Revelation. If you think we've destroyed the planet, where do you see what God does with it? Of course, now He has the right to do it. We're to be caretakers over it. To subdue it and have dominion over it doesn't mean to trash it. We're to be caretakers of it. We're to mine it, but not to uh, be careless about it. I do believe we have a stewardship over it. 
But do understand, this is a disposable planet for God's redemptive purpose. God fashioned man creatively and carefully and out of love like an artist would make an expression. And he breathed into his nostrils the (sighs) breath. The term breath, the term wind, and the term spirit, you discover in Hebrew have the same Hebrew word, ruach. Ruach. Wind, spirit, breath. Same word. In the New Testament, same thing. Wind, breath, spirit, in the Greek is pneuma. So God breathed, uh, God invigorated man with his spirit. And man became a living being. The Lord planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, I'm often asked, where was the Garden of Eden? Well, we're dealing here, and you'll see some names in a minute. And so you're naturally going to say, well, where where would that be? Where is that name? But we're dealing with pre-flood geography, antediluvian geography. And and that has changed. The earth looks different. There were no barren deserts at that time. There sure are now. Uh, Just go west a little while. Uh, There were no polar ice caps then. There are now. And names change, or I should say names are borrowed what is called a Pishon back then may be called Pishon elsewhere. Or you'll read about Gihon. There's a Gihon spring in Jerusalem. But it, it probably wasn't Jerusalem because it mentions the Tigris and Euphrates River. It was probably somewhere in the uh, Mesopotamian River Delta. That's the best guess I can give you as to where it is. But I remember when somebody uh, told me uh, when I first moved to New Mexico and they said, I'm going to Cuba for the weekend. <laughs> and I remember my reaction. I said, you can't go to Cuba for the weekend. It's a restricted country. They said, no, Cuba, New Mexico. I said, well, I didn't know there was one. Or when a couple said to me, hey, we're going to Las Vegas for the weekend. I said, oh, man, I don't know if you should. I should probably stay away from that place. So I... I got family there, and it's, you know, only a couple hours. I said, boy, you must be, oh, you're flying. They said, no, Las Vegas, New Mexico. Well, we rename things after other names, and so names after the flood were no doubt borrowed by Noah and Shem and the others uh, for post-Diluvian geography. Okay, just keep that in mind. Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man that he formed Out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree to grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, every now and then, I run into a well-meaning humanist who wants to tell me that man is just a product of his environment. And if man was placed in a perfect environment, he would be a good person. There is some truth to that. We are certainly the sum, in part, the sum of how we were raised in our environment. We think based upon how we were treated, etc. But 
This was the perfect environment, this Eden, this paradise that we read about, and yet man rebelled because man had choice. Now, later on, toward the end of time, we'll read about it in the book of Revelation, for a thousand years, Satan will be bound. So there won't be the devil. But after the thousand years is up, he is released. And there's a huge rebellion that takes place after the millennium, after a perfect environment, after a thousand years of a perfect environment, there'll be a huge rebellion. So all those people that said, well, man, it's just a product of his environment. If he's in a perfect environment, wait a minute. It's going to be another Eden for a thousand years that'll be like the Garden of Eden. It'll be a perfect paradise. But mankind then will sin because there's depravity, there's evil within the heart of man. It's not the environment. It's the heart. Well, why are there wars and why are there tragedies, etc., murders? Is it the environment? Sometimes. But the Bible tells us that every person is born with a bent toward evil because of what Adam did in chapter 3. A constitutional change happened at the moment Eve and Adam surrendered to the suggestion of Satan in chapter 3. I came across something I wanted to read to you. I came across it years ago, and I've kept it. It was uh, from the Minnesota Crime Commission that gave a partial reason for the rise in the crime rate. Now listen to the findings of the Minnesota Crime Commission. Every baby starts, starts life as a little savage. Wait, it gets better. He's completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch. If you're a parent, you know this to be true. Deny these and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. But if permitted to continue in the self-centered world of his infancy, given free reign to his impulsive actions to satisfy his wants, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, a rapist. Now that is a group of people that understood what the Bible clearly teaches, the depravity of human nature. We are as bad off as we can possibly be because of what we'll read about in the next chapter, if we ever get to it. (laughs) But what I want you to notice in verse 9 is something called the tree of life. Notice it, because you won't see it again until Revelation 22. Oh, you will see it again. You will see it. You yourself will see it. Revelation 22 in the New Jerusalem. Remember what it says? And I saw in the midst of the street and on either side of the river the tree of life, John said, bearing twelve kinds of fruit. And each tree bearing fruit according to its month. And the leaves were for the healing of the nations. So it shows up as as a tribute to God's creation there in uh, the book of Revelation, in the new heaven, in the new earth, in the new Jerusalem. It was a real tree. It was a a real place. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden. 
And from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. We don't know where that is. Some have guessed it's the Indus River. Others have said it's the Ganges River. Others have said it's a river in Arabia. Uh, Others have said it's a river in uh, Mesopotamia. So you can take your pick. It's the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah. So you got a clue now. Where there is gold. Some believe Havilah is the ancient name of southwest Arabia. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. Now, because Cush was a biblical name later on for Ethiopia, some believe this is the Nile pre-flood as one of the rivers. But again, we're dealing with antediluvian geography. It's hard to really be precise. The name of the third river is the Hidekel. It's another name for the Tigris River. It is one that goes toward the east of Assyria. That's relatively the same. And the fourth is the Euphrates. Then the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. And the word keep means literally, get this, to enslave it. To enslave creation in a positive sense, to tap its potential to discover what can be done by by mining chemicals and harnessing energy and making things for the betterment of human life. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat you shall surely die. Now people have a problem right here. They say, Why did God put a monkey wrench in the machinery? Everything was perfect. And he had to let people have, human, have choice, free choice. If God could have eliminated free choice, problem solved. No, not really. Because if you don't have free choice, you have robots. If you don't have volition, you have automatons. You, you program them in. Do you really feel, would you really feel loved? If you pull a string on a doll and the doll says, I love you, do you go, oh yes, I'm fulfilled, I'm satisfied, I need nothing else. You need therapy if you believe that. There's no way to have a world where people, where creatures have genuine freedom unless they have the potential to sin. You can't have free will without that potential. And if you don't have free will and you don't have that potential to go either way, then you don't have a world that is uh, a a world that would ever uh, understand love, which is the highest value. There has to be freedom, and that freedom comes with risks. And that risk is the potential or the potentiality to disobey, to sin. There had to be. For there to be a loving God, volition had to be part of the game. But in the day that you eat, you will surely die. And the Lord said, It is not good, first time He said it, that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to to him. Men, I want you to think of the Garden of Eden for just a moment. 
It's a dream world. It's what every guy would love. Lots of land, lush vegetation. You never have to take care of it. No taxes. No mortgage. No smog. You got the ideal job. All you have to do is wake up and look at animals and decide what you're going to name them. Unrestricted fellowship with God every every afternoon in the breeze or the cool of the day. What else could you want? What could be better than that, you might ask? Well, God looked at it and said, something's not right. I'm looking at this guy. I'm looking at him. I made him. I'm looking at him. Not good. <laughs> not saying that God, what God had done wasn't good. But God realized that it wasn't complete. It was like a North Pole without a South Pole. He was out of balance. He was out of whack. It's not good that man should be alone. Companionship was needed. And all of the animals, even man's best friend, the dog, wasn't enough. Couldn't fulfill him. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Now, gals, I recognize in reading that term, you're not flattered. You look at that and go, helper? Is that what I am? Is that all I am? His helper? I mean, how would you feel if your husband said, I'd like you to meet my helper? (laughs) Wouldn't go over very well, would it? Sort of like my assistant. It doesn't sound what it really is intended to sound like in this translation. It sort of sounds like an assistant, like, I take you as my lawfully wedded wife to cook and to launder, to have and to fold until this, from this day forward. However, understand something. The word helper in Hebrew is the same word God used to describe himself. Psalm 46, the Lord is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. The same exact Hebrew word used there for God is used for this gal. Not saying she is like God, but saying that she, well, she will help him. He needed all the help he could get, according to God. And uh, that's how I feel I was before I got married. I needed help. A lot of help. Well, A helper comparable or um, something that completes him. Something that balances him out. The idea is that of polarity, as I mentioned, the, the poles together. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. Now something about the word Adam, the name Adam. Adam is the Hebrew word for man, but Adam comes from another Hebrew word, Adama, which is the Hebrew word for earth. We, we would call Adam literally dusty. This was dusty and Mrs. Dusty. Adama means red like the earth. Adam means he's red like the earth. He's got that, the, the flow of blood is in him. 
Not like the plants. This is uh, something that has a different color cast to it. Adam. Okay, now, uh, something about names. Ready? Here, Adam is named something that resembles one of the colors in the earth. And you notice in the Bible, when people name their children, they will often name them according to the circumstances of their birth or something they wish those children would embody. But often, circumstances that happen at the birth uh, or here at the creation, they'll get named that. So probably when Adam started naming animals, he looked at certain features and he looked at, at certain characteristics and named it accordingly. Now, we don't know what language he used. We don't know what names he used. Of course, if he used English, and we know he didn't do that, at least I don't think he did, then we, we would wonder. Maybe at first, you know, uh, Adam was very creative and he named animals, the first ones, the, like hippopotamus rhinoceros, you know, many syllables. But then as the day wore on, he got a little tired. (laughs) Dog. (laughs) Cat. Anyway, I don't know. I, I, I try to imagine it. That couldn't be it. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper Comparable to him. None of those animals could complete him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept. And he took one of his ribs. And he closed up the flesh in its place. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. Little boy heard this story in his Sunday school class. It really made an impact on him. Later on, on that Sunday after lunch, he felt a pain in his side and he was in his bedroom, doubled over, and he shouted out, Help! I think I'm having a woman! (laughs) The word for rib literally means his side or a, a portion of his side, just generically the side. It didn't have to be the rib bone. There's a beautiful little story that Matthew Henry used to tell, a great commentator. And he was quoting the Jewish sages. It goes like this. Woman was not taken from man's head to be above him. She was not taken from man's foot to be walked on by him. But she was taken from his side to be equal to him from under his arm to be protected by him and near to his heart to be loved by him. Beautiful. A portion of his side and God made the woman. And God brought the woman to the man. Now, I'll tell you another quick story before we finish up. There's a story that says that Adam, when he saw Eve, was blown away. She was so beautiful and so different, so soft. And just, wow. And so he had a conversation with God later on that day after getting to know her. God, you made her so beautiful and so soft and tender. and Wow. Why did you make her so beautiful and so wow? And God said, so that you would love her. Oh, yeah. Well, that worked. And then he got a little bit closer. But God, why did you make her so stupid? 
And God said, so she would love you. Now that's not in the biblical account. I think I heard that at a men's rally somewhere. Truth is, Adam and Eve were different from each other, male and female. And one of the great things in a relationship is to enjoy the differences. Don't let them go away. It are the, it's, it's those differences. And a lot of people in our culture try to make light and minimize the differences between a man and a woman. Why? When there are so many differences. You know, my wife and I, are, we have a lot of characteristics that are the same, but we're very different. Our thermostats are different. When I get in a car, I like to turn on the AC. She shuts hers off. She likes it. She, her, she's a little bit cooler. She wants it warmer. I'm a little warmer and I want it hotter. And that's just the beginning. It's those differences, though, that shape us and mold us. God knew what you need. And the gift of God to give you someone different than yourself, which is what uh, caused you two to be attracted to each other in the beginning were your differences. Capitalize on them. Let God work on you through those differences. You've got some rough edges. Let Him work on those rough edges by that mate. Accept her, accept him as a gift that God had made. And that's the idea here. He brought her to the man. And Adam said, now I know this sounds like a strange thing to say when you first check out your wife. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Maybe he was tongue-tied. She shall be called woe-man because she was taken out of man. It renders the Hebrew, but it misses the emotion. The Living Bible captures it. The Living Bible captures the emotion, though it doesn't capture all the nuances of the Hebrew. The Living Bible says... When God brought the woman to the man, Adam said, This is it. As if to say, Yeah, yeah, I get it. This is the one. This is the true companion that I've been waiting for. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined into his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Leaving, cleaving, weaving. The relationship must begin by severing one relationship so as to solidify another relationship. I know some children that never leave their father and mother. Always on the phone talking about everything or uh, needing a financial fix for everything. I understand we all need a little bit of help. And when, you, when it says leave your father and mother, it doesn't mean abandon them. It means the relationship changes. The relationship changes. One of the best gifts you can give your children is to let them go, release them. My father-in-law gave me a gift early in our marriage when my wife, we were having a problem, and she called her dad to get advice. First thing he said is, I won't talk to you unless you, you tell me you've talked to Skip about this first and he's given permission to talk to me about this. Well, I, I applaud that. That's the way it should be. He understood this principle. There's a leaving, a severing. Then there's a cleaving, be joined to. The idea is permanence, permanence. The idea is two people will come together and make a commitment and a determination to be together permanently. It could be translated welded together, bound inextricably together. Now, does that mean that in a marriage there is never a reason for a couple to be separated? No, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches there's one reason, and that is adultery. 
And that is the only reason. But the idea is permanent. And I'll ask you this. Have, do you know of any divorce where the people aren't damaged? You can't take something that's welded together or glued and separate it without damage. So the idea is permanence. If you were to glue two pieces of paper together and let it dry, and then in a week say, I, don't, I changed my mind. I want those two papers separate again. So now you go about trying to separate the glue from both sides of the paper. Could you do it and have the paper look and be the same in constitution as before? No. Impossible. So God's idea of a relationship is that when formed, it's an ongoing permanent bond. And then the leaving and the cleaving is the basis for the weaving, the one flesh. You see, one flesh isn't an instant procedure. It's a lifelong process. To take a guy who throws his socks in the sink and is like as messy as a gopher and and a woman who irons napkins, paper napkins, and bring them together to, to weave those two lives doesn't happen easily in a week. It takes a lifetime. It takes a lifetime. But I've got to tell you something about that process. You're in for the ride of your life. So many changes will occur if you're committed to that. I think this little section here, and we're, we're, we're done. We have one verse left. This is the best counseling anywhere, just this verse. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. It's because they had arrived at true intimacy. They were naked and not ashamed. And, and it's more than just physical. There was a psychological vulnerability, a trust, where they could completely be themselves and hide nothing, and there was no fear of reprisal. That's the idea. And they enjoy that intimacy until sin enters the relationship, and then they seek to hide from one another and from God. We'll discover that next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time we have spent, albeit a few minutes over time, We thank you that we could devote that time to you as well. We pray, Father, that the principles that we have gleaned in these first two chapters would abide with us as a foundation for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.